I mean, I'd be walking the hallway. Rush Limbaugh's office was next to mine. You would have, I'm not making this up. You would have, I walked in one day, Charlton Heston is in the hallway. And <laughs> I back and I, and I was so enamored. He was sitting in waiting to see Rush. And I walked in, I called him Moses. I'm like, Moses. And I'm like, oh, this, I mean, Mr. Heston. Ben's town president, Dave Chachi Dennis, loves radio. And all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> My next guest has won a multitude of awards, including News Talk GM of the Year twice by R&R, a top 10 manager by Radio Inc., the retired detectives of the NYPD, the Epilepsy Society of New York, and Iona College have all named him Man of the Year, and the Walt Disney Company bestowed him with the Points of Light Volunteer Service Award. He has worked as the GM for WABC, the executive GM for ESPN Radio in LA and New York City, the SVP for all of the ESPN-owned and operated radio stations, and the SVP for play-by-play and talent planning for ESPN. He currently serves as the president of the Broadcasters Foundation. Please welcome Tim McCarthy. Tim, welcome, man. Well, thank you, Dave. Appreciate it very much. What a bio. That is, that is a lot. And, and actually, before I let Darren go, because I know Darren's got to jump here, but I, didn't, I just was putting this together when I was reading your intro. The two of you guys worked at uh, Disney together. Darren was the uh, director of commercial production for Radio Disney for 20, 20 years, Darren? 22. Oh, really? Because I ran, I ran Radio Disney in New York, I don't know, probably four or five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. We used to, in the early days when I was, when it all started in Dallas, I was there. Yeah. I was in Dallas doing production for New York. So I was, I was your production guy at that time. Oh, wow, man. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Small, small world. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Funny. Well, we'll let you go, Darren. Okay. I'll get back to the uh, back to the interview. But Tim, man, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really, it's it's an honor. We got to spend some time together. Uh, you know, I've obviously heard about you, and you're you've had a legendary career, and uh, so many people speak so highly of you. But I really didn't get to spend much time with you until Scott Herman introduced us at uh, Radio Inc. Forecast uh, this last fall in New York, and we got to sit next to each other uh, for Forecast, and that was an honor and a pleasure, and really happy to have you on the show. Oh, happy to be here. I love uh, I love the work you guys are doing, and uh, you. Know, Listen, any, anyone who's friends with Scott Herman, um, I probably shouldn't be friends with, but <laughs> yeah. really yeah. we, we obviously have bad taste in friends, yeah. but <laughs> he's, uh, he's our chairman at the broadcast. Uh, so he's, he's a class act sure. and he was one of the early believers in Benstown and I owe a lot of our success to, to him and his early belief in us. I, I really am a, a big Scott fan and I'm excited. I'll be uh, playing with him at the, uh, uh, the, uh, Philip, uh, Lombardo charity golf tournament. We'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, coming up in Las Vegas in a couple months. Yep, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, uh, growing up. You grew up on the East coast. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I grew up, grew up outside new city, uh, New York city in, uh, Rockland County. Um, originally born in the Bronx, then we moved up there. My dad was a New York City cop, was a cop in Harlem for 25 years. So, you know, you know, big family, there's five, five kids in the family and, uh, dad being a cop, mom was a homemaker and, uh, it was a great, li- great lifestyle growing up. Did your father want you to follow him in his footsteps and uh, go into law enforcement? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> hey, Dave, it's so funny. I took the New York City and the New York State Troopers test passed. Did you? And he begged me. I, w- I just got out of college. I went to Iona College in New Rochelle, New York, and he begged me not to go on the job. He just felt that 
things were changing and he felt I could do better. Whatever. Oh, it, I, you know, yeah. my dad, I was proud of him, proud that he's a police officer, but he, he said, listen, do something else. <laughs> Fascinating. So at that point, were you kind of let down by that or were you more than happy to say, okay, I'm not going to do this? Because it sounds like you were kind of heading down that track. Well, I kind of got it because I, I noticed, I mean, listen, he worked in a tough neighborhood. I saw how he came, came home either late in, late in the day, early in the morning. He had a few visits to the hospital. Okay. So, you know, I, I saw what was going on and I said, listen, I just, you know, spent a lot of money on a college education. I started a new job out of college that I, I was lucky enough to get early on. And uh, I said, let me try this and see what happens. And were you guys pretty close growing up? Sounds like you guys had, yeah. Yeah, we were, we were very close. And my dad died at a young age, died at 58. Um, oh man, I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. You must've been pretty young. But, uh, but I will tell you, it's amazing when I was going into radio and my dad was a huge WABC fan, huge, tremendous. So listen to, and I started, uh, I don't want to move ahead, but I started WPLJ, but I got an offer to go work at PLJ. And I said, dad, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get in the radio. And he was pretty sick at the time. He said, and my mother didn't want me to do it. She's like, you have a nice little job here. You're doing great. Bum, bum, bum. And, uh, he said, you, you got to go do it. Go do it. You'll be great. So, And it's funny, a few years later, I was at WABC and eventually ended up running the station, which is kind of ironic. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he would have been incredibly proud. So he got to at least see your start into the business. Yeah, I was just starting when he got sick. I had come into college and uh, I'll tell you, if I can, I'll tell you how I got started in radio. It's, it, yeah, no, please. I know you started at PLJ. So yeah, tell yeah, me a little bit about it. It's... Uh, <clears throat> I got a job. I was working for a company called International Paper. I was selling hardboard and sheetrock and all this stuff in New York City. And I got a company car, worked out of my house, you know, two days a week. And I went to Brooklyn, all these different areas. And it was great. I was doing quite well. But I, I always wanted to be in media or an actor or whatever. I had no connections. I had no idea. Long story short, on the side, when my father retired from being a cop, he was what they called an executive assistant at this company, Orange and Rockland Utilities, which is now Con Edison. And okay. pick up executives at the airport and do all that type of stuff. They wanted someone who was an ex-policeman. So he asked me, would I pick up this person at the airport? You want to do this, want to do that? And I did it to make extra money. One of the guys I used to pick up was this guy, Jim O'Grady. And Jim O'Grady was on the board there. He also, uh, he ran at one, uh, at one time RKO Radio, and he was buying radio stations for this utility company because it was hot at that time. It was like the late 80s. Sure. Um, so and so you met him literally driving him, driving around, him as, around as an, as an Uber driver, yeah, basically. Really. It, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. And we would talk about sports. He'd sit in the front seat with me and, you know, how's your job? What are you doing? You know, I was bartending at night, two nights a week as well to make extra money. And he said, you know, you should get into, into the media. And I said, I, I don't know what he won. And he said, you know, he said, listen, my, my, my son's friend is coming down to run WPLJ in New York. And the station really needs some help. I sh I'll hook you up with him. Amazing. And he hooked me up uh, with Mitch Dolan. And I was his first hire. <laughs> That's absolutely. And he hired you as an account executive? As an account executive, no less. <laughs> cold calling. 
That's unbelievable. I mean, to get your first, your foot in the door at PLJ in the number one media market in the country. I mean, what an amazing opportunity. Were you, did you know enough to feel the pressure or were you still just somewhat naive and didn't really feel it? Well, here's the thing. I, you know, I got a job starting in sales. I knew the sales side. I knew how okay. somewhat cold call. And I had done some- From your, from international papers. Yeah, so you had yeah, kind of, got yeah. it, understood, so understood. I, I got that part and I, I was doing pretty well there. I won a bunch of awards and it was all good. Really? Like right off the bat? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, I did pretty well. And- Because uh, that's, inc- that's incredibly, I mean, it is incredibly tough to start as an account executive. And I'm assuming being you were a rookie, it wasn't like they gave you a list to start oh, no. with. So you're, oh. you're <laughs> I mean, you're really smiling and dialing and, uh, and doing the best you can, but it didn't, it came naturally to you to, I'm, I'm guessing to a degree. Well, it was tough. Uh, you know, and I tell everyone the first two years in the business is super tough. I will tell you this much. I had, I got offered a job with LTW and PLJ because I interviewed with a bunch of places. LTW was a rocket ship. They were sure. at that time, PLJ was switching format like every other week. Right. So right. I, I said to myself, Hmm, where can I grow f- faster? No one's going to leave LTW. I got a better shot at PLJ. Right. Plus at the time their business was so bad, you know, I can cut my own. <laughs> so was this right? Because Scott left Shannon, left here in LA 91 after Pirate Radio. Yeah. When did he start at PLJ? Was that around the same Jay, time? Was it late 91? It was somewhere around 91. Okay. A funny story to that. Um, I was probably at PLJ a year and a half or so. Maybe, yeah, maybe two years. It might have been late 91, 92. I was with Mitch Dolan at his apartment when Scott called him, when they started the conversation. No way. And at the time, the station's like, oh man, who's going to be a morning show next, right? We were going back and forth and he's, he's talking and he wouldn't see who it was. And I'm like, is that Scott Shannon? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Because I'm sure you listened to him on, on uh, the Z, the morning zoo. Yeah. He was, yeah. He was a legend. And then when he came back, the PLJ, we put Mojo Radio on the air. Oh my that was gosh. Scott's first format, Mojo Radio. And and by the way, that format now would be killer. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So, it was so good. It was new music. It was interactive. It was very digital for its time, but it wasn't what the consumers wanted. So, but what an exciting time! I mean, you guys are out there taking chances. You're working with, I mean, Mitch Dolan's a legendary uh, yeah. a GM, and you're working with, you know, Scott Shannon. Doesn't get any bigger than that. I mean, that's got to be incredibly exciting. Uh, it was. It was. It was awesome. For me, a kid from Rockland County who, whose dad was a cop, and I'm standing in the hallway, and there goes Rod Stewart walking down the hallway. Oh, amazing. Like, amazing. Was PLJ at Penn Station at that yes, point? Yeah. Where I, okay, that's where it was. And what a beautiful facility yeah. and location. Oh, and, it was great. Yeah, right above uh, Madison Square Garden. I mean, beautiful. that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. great. And uh, across the hall was WABC. Okay. So you had the AM, and the FM and the AM never, never talked to each other. It was the FM with the cool kids and they got yeah. AM uh, folks who had bad ratings, you know, it was 70 plus and no one cared about them. And that's the legendary WABC. I mean, we're yeah. started, right? 
It's so funny. I was just a few years behind you, but I got my start in 96 at KFMB in San Diego, and it was a hot AC radio station. We used to follow PLJ very closely to what PLJ, you know, what PLJ was doing. And we had an AM, KFMB AM, same exact situation right across the hall. And the AM and the FM didn't talk to each other. It was so similar. And I remember we actually got these really cool floodlights, those halogen lights when those were brand new, and they were shining down the hall. They made the hallway kind of feel like you were walking onto the set and it was shining on our logo and into the studio. It was really cool. And the AM got nothing. And so one of the guys on the AM station, which I still find hilariously funny, took a flashlight, duct taped it to a back of the chair and had the flashlight turned on shining on KFMB AM's logo. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So how do you cross the, the hall now? Because you're at PLJ, and I understand it's just across the hall, but it is a big difference going from PLJ to, to WABC. Oh, yeah, huge difference. And listen, I, I love both formats, right? I love the talk format, and they were looking for a local sales manager. So I said, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And I was, you know, three years selling, and it was kind of, you know, and, ba- and back then you post a job for local sales manager, like 80 people Oh, yeah. In, in New York, WABC. I mean, what are you in your mid-20s at that point? I was uh, 29, yeah, 20, 28, 29. I mean, that had to have been a tremendous amount of pressure. I, you know, to be honest with you, I thought I had no shot of getting it. And I said, ah, screw it. So I interviewed with them, and I met with Don Balukas, who ran everything at the time. He was the GM at WABC, but he ran the whole group. And Don... You know, we're still friends this day, called around to a few ad agencies I called on and they wanted a guy who could develop business. So I got the job. And <laughs> incredible question for you. So my first, uh, I, I met my first wife, Carrie, and we're still really good friends. She's got an agency now. And she, I was at programming at KBIG and she was an account executive at KFI. And she actually loved selling talk radio far more than music radio. Cause she always felt that it just delivered better results for her clients. Yep. Did you find the same? Absolutely. I think the great thing about talk, talk radio and any level of talk content, you can always create a story. There's always a story. Nothing against music radio, but Madonna's on this station, the same as that stage, the same as that. Right. It's all ratings driven. I can tell a story about a personality and how they can sell your product and get results. And it works if you do it well. And the great yeah. thing about that. Then you have a friend for life, you have a client for life, and many of them have become very good friends because you're helping them business their business be so successful and you're not delegated to the fact that, oh man, you dropped from number five to fifteen, I'm not buying you anymore. Yeah. Really interesting. Actually, very similar happened to her. One of her clients eventually hired her, uh, Tax Resolution Services, and hired her to work for them full time because, and she does all of their media buying to this day. Oh, wow. Uh, because wow. of the success that they had with her and working initially at, at Talk Radio. So it is fascinating. I think podcasting's catching on to that to some degree, too. I'm, I'm more of a music guy and from that side, and I love, love music radio, but, and, and I love Talk Radio. I'm, a, I guess, a fan of radio, period. But um, I, podcasting, they're finding out that these endorsements, are really, uh, I think, successful for a lot of these different brands. And that's what we kind of saw back in the 80s and the 90s with endorsement deals, especially on AM radio and talk radio. Well, Dave, if you think about it, and and you you nailed it with podcasting, it's the talk format in smaller sections, less advertisers, but the legitimacy of the um, person talking, talking about an advertiser, it means something. There's a connection with that other person listening. They're engaged. 
for that 27 minutes they're on your podcast because they want to hear their podcast. Thus, the advertiser is much more credible, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, the old days of a car commercial in one stop set, and now it's car commercial, car commercial, car commercial, car commercial, right? So true. We've commoditized. Completely buried it. Yes, and, you're right. And television's doing the same right. thing. I mean, yeah. we're different. You're absolutely right. I mean, what a career trajectory, though. I mean, at that point, WABC, I'm guessing, is probably top 10 in the Miller-Kaplan in New York. No, no, I mean, no, no. no, it wasn't? Not even close. Not WABC at that time was struggling. Okay. So you were actually kind of in a, they were in a rebuilding mode at the time. Yeah, I'll, I'll, it was interesting. So, you know, when I went over there, it was a real culture shock. They had some good talent, but it wasn't where the the people, the culture, people didn't care about. It was like, ah, we're the AM people. We don't. Okay. Much. And yet Bob Grant doing afternoon drive who had killer numbers, uh-huh. um, but they were older. And then you had a potpourri of different, we went to a bunch of different morning shows from, you know, Lionel to this one to that one, a bunch of them. And then Bob Grant, Bob Grant got fired by Disney when Disney eventually bought the stations. Oh. In 95, I believe. And he got fired. So any ratings we had went out the window. At the same token, we had the Yankee rights and the Yankees were horrible then. Okay. They were paying a big rights fee. They weren't bringing in a lot of cum. The station hated that they paid this big rights fee. So they almost like the promos made fun of the Yankees. It was So this is like this is like right before Jeter and all of yeah, that. Totally. That whole dynasty era. It was almost <laughs> dysfunctional in many respects. I hate to say that as much as I love the station. But things started to change. You know, I, I moved up and became head of sales for ABC and PLJ for the floor. And then eventually uh, they made me uh, station manager of WABC. It so happens that at that same time, there's a guy filling in named Sean Hannity who was filling in. And I remember I called Mitch Dolan one day and said, man, this guy filling in is really good. Um, you know, where's he from? I was in Atlanta, but he's moving to New York to work for Fox. They're starting a news channel. I'm like, we got to get our hands on him. And Phil Boyce, who's the PD and, and Mitch. And it just, we, we hired Hannity to do nights. And when Greg Un- fired, we moved him down to afternoon drive. Unbelievable. And you could tell just kind of even early on, just by him doing fill in that he was the real deal. Oh yeah. You know, the thing about Sean, which I loved and advertiser loved it. He was the guy next door. So younger men loved them. And older women loved him. He was just, <laughs> he was just like the nice guy, right? And he wasn't over the over the top. He had his views, but how he presented those views weren't mean spirited or anything. And you, you could just tell. I mean, the guy was you know I don't know how Sean was then thirty years old, right? You know, good looking at the whole thing, right? Right. So we had Rush, we had Sean. Rush always had big numbers, but he couldn't get bought in the marketplace in New York. No one to buy him. You know, to this, to that. But that natural cum going into Sean really helped Sean. And the next challenge was how do we get someone for mornings? How do we lighten up the station where we can use the value of the cum and those numbers, but be a little more advertiser friendly with some other talent? So we kind of fascinating. We built kind of that over time. You know, eventually we took John, we got John Gambling to come over. That's when we hired John, who I love. He's a great guy. Everyone was like, oh, you know, Gambling's you're hiring. You know, John is kind of old, which he wasn't old at the time. But 
you know, the perception was because of the three gamblings that he was. But the great thing about John, advertisers loved him. So he was a great segue into Rush, to Sean, eventually Mark Simone, Mark Levin, just kind of- Amazing lineup. Took off. It was great. And so now things are really gelling. You're running the entire station. So you're overseeing the programming and the, who's the program director at that time? Phil Boyce. Okay. Got it. And then the sales. And then as the ratings are ticking up and you've got this incredible lineup, were you able to enjoy it or did you feel more pressure? Um, it's funny, Dave, ABC at the time was to the company in many respects, particularly the television station was kind of an embarrassment because we're always in the paper for negativity. You know, interesting before me. And my goal was to beat wins or CBS in ratings and to make the company proud. And I said, we got to, we got to keep our core, but soften the edges. We got to be right. friendly. We're going to do some different things and, and, and young the station up where we can. We marketed the station well. I was always looking for new talent, you know, young talent. I mean, I'd be walking the hallway. Rush Limbaugh's office was next to mine. You would have, I'm not making this up. You would have, I walked in one day, Charlton Heston is in the hallway. And <laughs> I back and I, and I was so enamored. He was sitting in waiting to see Rush. And I walked in, I called him Moses. I'm like, Moses. And I'm like, oh, this, I mean, Mr. Heston. And he comes up, stands up, shakes my hand. I mean, Casper Weinberger, George Bush. I mean, they were all coming to pay homage to Rush. Unbelievable. What was it like to work with Rush on a, on a day-to-day, be you know, down the hall from him and, and Hannity for that matter? I'll tell you about Rush. He was such a nice guy. He was a gentleman. He got such a bad rap. I always felt bad for him because Rush was an entertainer. And I went to his office one day. I said, Rush, all this stuff, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that? He says, Tim, I am in the business to entertain. You know, how I do it is up to me. But yeah. this is an entertainment-based business. And he, he got it. He, got this, he understood the secret sauce, how it worked. It's funny. Carrie had a very similar uh, scenario at the time. She got to meet him. He was broadcasting from Florida, from his house in Florida. But they flew out uh, her and a few of her like you know top clients that spent a lot of money, and they actually got to go there, say hi, and I think they had a meal with him. And she said he could not have been any nicer. And it was just this uh, you know a consummate gentleman and uh, just a great storyteller and a lot of fun to be around. And very and very generous. Once a month, because he would get stuff delivered to his uh, the office for him and Dave. I'm talking cases of lobster, popcorn makers, got a TV. Uh, I, I'm not making this up. <clears throat> we put it all in the conference room and he would say, all right, you'd be an announcement. Go at it. Come in and take what you want. And people would be walking out with popcorn. Amazing. It was <laughs> unbelievable. That's great though. I love hearing stories like that. That's incredible. Just great. And so did you find it with these big personalities and, you know, having to manage through that, was it generally relatively easy or were there times where you were at odds and it was tough to uh, kind of communicate your messaging and uh, ultimately being able to lead the station? Yeah. I mean, it was tough times overall. They were all, all pretty good. I mean, at the time, you know, Rush had been big in the syndication. So we lost some power there. Although he worked out of our facility, we were very sensitive to, to Rush and what his needs were. You know, sure. Dr. Laura for a while, and she came on. Um, wow. And she was there. She would come into town. I'd let her, she'd use my office all the time. 
But, you know, Sean got it. Sean got the sales side. I would have once a month, I would have cocktail party with advertisers in my office. So at like three o'clock, they would come in. I would bring in some food, some wine, set up a little bar back in the days you could do that. And they would come and watch Sean's show at three and they'd come in and out of my office and go to the studio and have some wine. Sean would come in, talk to them. Amazing. And we were just trying to show that this is not the old school radio station you think it is, that younger demos like us, that Sean's a good guy, that you can hang with him. And he did a great job. He was awesome. In 98, you guys now become the number one news talk station in the market. So you basically lift the station up, rebuild the station, and now you you become, you've reached the pinnacle. What was that moment like? It was, remember, uh, uh, I remember, the- I'll tell you what I remember. And it's, it works for today. The greatest thing. I'm in my office one morning. My, my assistant calls me and she says, Bob Iger's on the phone. Get out. Now being the cynic I am and having knucklehead buddies, like we all have, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> what does Bob Iger want? To pay, right? So I'm like, yeah. You know, so I pick up the phone. Yeah, what do you want? I'm thinking it's my best, <laughs> and it's it's Bob Iger. And no way. And hey, Bob, you know Tim, it's Bob Iger. Hey, I'm like, oh, I immediately know by the voice. Hey, 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 Bob, you know, what's going on? Hey, I read the article in the paper. You guys became number one. It's just great. I got to tell you, he was so engaged. I expected. Hey, just wanted to call and say congrats and leave. He's like, had to do it. What do you do different? What do you think, you know, that made the audience grow? He was really engaged. And he said, listen, we're so proud that ABC is back where it should be. It was a long time coming. He was awesome. I was floating for like a week. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. I love that story. I, I read his book about a year ago and uh, I, I really just enjoyed that book and where he, you know, how he started and worked his way up all, you know, from a page and, you know, ended up being the, the CEO of Disney and now back again for, for, yeah, for a second run. But that is, that's incredibly cool. What a great story. So at that point, are you obvious WABC, but now Bob calls you and you've gotten this national attention. Is that when they elevate you to oversee Radio Disney and ESPN yeah. or did that kind Radio of- Disney station somewhere in between? It was actually Radio Disney was first. I think it was 98, 99. And then in 2001, I was actually on vacation, which I had to come back from. Hey, we're buying, we're going to get an uh, ESPN station. We're going to open in New York. And I said, oh, we're going against FAN? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? <laughs> Why would we do that? But ESPN brand was getting so big. The challenge was we were considered an affiliate still. It wasn't owned and operated. Okay. So we were carrying ESPN programming on 1050, which we bought WEVD. We bought the station. So I was operating the three. And it's funny, we, op- we started ESPN in September. And then four days later, 9-11 hit. Oh, man. Yeah, so what I did is, because no one cared, no one even knew we existed, really, I put WABC on both signals for three months. For three months? For three months. That must have been a tough, I mean, a tough decision. I remember being here when that happened, and we, I was at uh, K-Big and Coast at that point. I was a programming uh, coordinator, but um, my boss, Johnny K, decided to put KFI on Coast. But I remember him thinking about that for a long time and trying to figure out what to do. And I think we did it for a couple days, if I recall, but not for three months. Well, what happened, what was so tough, I mean, the folks at ESPN weren't happy because I was still reporting to ABC. Right. And they didn't own the station. And 
my argument, this is New York City. This is all. Sure. Ground zero. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to get anything on ESPN right now. Let's prepare. Let's readdress things. Let's coordinate. So in January or December 15th, we're good to go hiring more people. We put the station on the air in 22 days. So it was tough. It was brand it new. It was brand yeah, new. Absolutely We're brand new. We're hiring, you know, sports center. So I'm sure. I'm sure you've got, I'm sure people are understandable because it was such a devastating event, but it also had to have been tough for the air talent and the producers. Oh, and yeah. You're just getting this machine going and then it's just like, stop. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was definitely the right decision because we were carrying mostly network programming anyway, and it gave us time to really prepare going forward. Talk to me a little bit about, you obviously started in music and then you move over to to talk. And now you're doing sports, which is talk, but a very different talk in a lot of ways. And so, and on top of that, you've got Radio Disney, which is a completely different demo. So how is your mind, how are you able to kind of partition those three things and, and work with them all effectively? Well, it, so an ABC at that time was kind of far from coasting. We were always tweaking it, whatever, but we were in a really good position with talent, the staff, the sales team, and we were, we were kind of rolling along there. So I, I, I really moved a lot of my attention. How do we get ESPN better at the time? Okay. Because I did not want to be, hey, they tried in New York, it failed. And, you know, because, you know, fans going to kill them and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and they were. And for many years they were because we we're carrying a lot of network programming. We didn't have any local rights. So my goal was to get some local rights. So I went out and got the Islanders rights. First thing I did and put them on. And then I started working on the Knicks and the Rangers for ABC. And I got those rights, but I moved them to ESPN. Wow. So were they happy about that or were um, they upset? Would they have rather been on ABC? They would have rather been, been on ABC, but I, I told them, and Mike McCarthy was running MSG at the time. I said, you know, the value is going to be, you're going to be part of our conversation all the time. I can't do, right. I can't do that in ABC. You're, sure. you're just going to be there. Signals bigger, better. We'll probably simulcast some games. But we're going to be the Nick and Ranger station. We'll be talking about you all the time. Makes sense. Yeah. You're a fabric of the radio station as opposed to a... Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I really sort of moved my attention to ESPN. You know, I loved ABC and loved everything about it, but started to spend more time there. Radio Disney, I gave kind of the keys to one of the other managers and said, Okay. That's your... Yeah. <laughs> um, radio Disney, for what it was, was still a lot of work. I bet. We were uh, talking uh, earlier, but uh, Darren, who is our West Coast Director of Commercial Production, he spent almost 20 years at uh, Radio Disney, and he told me there was a lot, and I'm sure this is true of, of most or all Disney products, but a lot of attention to detail, a lot of attention to the, the, the programming. He would have to, when he was doing commercials, he told me, use real kids for the commercials. They didn't want to have, you know, actors. I mean, they really wanted things to be, uh, you know, the D Disney. I think they call it bump, bumping the lamp. Every detail had to be, you know, spot on. Yeah, absolutely Right. It was it was a lot of work, a lot of conference calls, a lot. Of, <laughs> so, I love the product. I think we did a pretty good job with it. Um, it could only go so far based on what it was. Sure. It's much better product for satellite. Right. Um, because that local you just don't have that localization that you really need. Yeah. And at that point, a lot of the content was coming out of Dallas, correct? It was all, for, uh, I mean, all, Dallas, we, did, Dallas, yeah. we did, I think, one local show on the weekends. Okay. Um, we did a bunch of remotes, but they were hey, before, people to work for. Talk to me a little bit about uh, uh, helping create the Michael K show. 
and watching that uh, take off and eventually going all the way to number one. So <clears throat> Michael was doing the radio, uh, radio for WABC. So when we hired him to do, and I didn't, Don Belucas did, hired him to do Yankees for WABC with John Sterling, we became very good friends because he was on the air. You know, I eventually was running the station. We gave, I gave away the Yankee rights. I did not bid on the Yankee rights at one time. Interesting. Just because they got so expensive? They got so or- expensive and our, our talk network was doing so well. I, I thought we could make more money by just doing talk as opposed to having the Yankees and selling that and have the, the sales team focused on just selling talk radio. And did that end up holding true? It did. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was a game changer. Uh, interesting. Huge game changer. Sure. Because here's the thing. I dropped the Yankees, but I still kept them on the stage because MSG bought the rights to the Yankees and they paid me to put them on. Wait a second. Hold on. I don't know if I fully understand. So, so I had the Yankee rights. I paid the rights. Okay. And we put them on WABC. I Go. said, we're not bidding on the rights. We're out. Okay. MSG who carried the Yankees on TV, Man Square Garden, okay. came in and said, we're going to go after the Yankee rights. And I, I said to them, well, I'd still love to carry it. We've been carrying him for years. Right. And we cut a deal where they paid me a, a rights fee to clear the team. Get out. Yeah. So it was basically a simulcast of the television. No, they did a separate radio broadcast. They'd still be a separate radio yeah. Um, that was a brilliant yeah. move. So it worked. It, it worked that ended out. up being a win, win-win all the way around. It was. Uh, you know, Mitch Dolan and you know myself kind of orchestrated that. So you then decide at that point when um, you didn't bid on him to create a show around Michael. Yeah, he did some a few talk shows for us, particularly during the strike year. And then when we picked up the ESPN station. I went to Michael. I said, "No, you could be a good talk show host." He's like, I, "I'm a play-by-play guy." Blah 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 blah. I said. We're looking to, you know, hire talent. I think it'd be great. And the first, Dave, the first team we were going to put together for Afternoon Drive, because everything that was syndicated except the Afternoon Drive, was going to be John McEnroe and Michael Kay. No way. Yeah. So John was great. But my argument with folks in programming was that he's got to be committed to doing this. Sure. He does the French Open. And he was just ending his kind of playing career, getting into broadcasting. Right. And I met with John twice, really cool dude, and he wanted to do it. He said, I'm ready to do it. And I said, but you got to be in the studio every day. And he said, well, I got to tell you about something. ABC just called me, and I don't know if you remember the show we did called The Chair. Yes, I do remember that. The Chair. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I got to do this thing in L.A., so for three months I'll do it in L.A., and then I want to do something else and whatever. And he was a great guy, but I said, you know, we just can't do this where you're doing other things, right, particularly right. starting out. So we didn't put him and Kay together. Kay did his own show in middays, and we put uh, a show with uh, called Wally and the Keeg. It was uh, Wally Matthews, who wrote for the Daily News, and Tom Keegan, who was also a writer, and we put them together in Afternoon Drive. And it took off. Uh, not really. <laughs> they, oh. they, oh, no. <laughs> uh, Michael K was, has always been the anchor on the station, but I put him in middays cause I didn't want to interrupt his Yankee schedule. Okay. Um, now we had Don LeGrecht at the time we had hired Don. It was very difficult because all the network obligations to bring new shows on and that, that became sure. tough. And I guess as I got more vocal and I guess more people trusted me, I was able to go out and start doing different things. But it was always a challenge because 
ESPN was always based on clearing network product. Got it. So you, to some degree, you had to obviously operate within those th- th- those borders. But at the same time, I got to hand it to you for, I mean, some of the shows that you've created have gone on or at least had a part in creative gone on to huge success. And to be able to take someone that did play by play really well, but have a gut feeling that they could actually host a show, which are two different skill sets. I, I can see how they're interrelated to some degree, but I grew up a big Vin Scully fan. I don't know if he ever could have moved over to do a show successfully and uh, to, to see you have that kind of success and someone to be dedicated like Michael to do that. That's a lot of work, man, especially during the Yankee season. Yeah, he's... He- well, Michael's a workhorse, and uh, he, quite frankly, he, I don't think, he would admit he didn't think he could do it. And what's amazing about the station, I and mean, we got our, our butts kicked early on for a long time. And, you know, my argument with everyone is, like, just let's hit our goals. You know, they were all manageable. We had a good sales team. Let's just keep moving, moving. We'll get some more rights. We'll get some talent. We always wanted to be the good guys in town. We would take out a lot of clients, do a lot of things like that. And in the meantime, I would look to hire more people and uh, and bring different talent in, like Stephen A. Smith. I mean, Stephen A. Smith started at our station. What side of the business, because you've got this knack for talent, you've got obviously a knack for sales. Uh, you're a phenomenal negotiator. I know that, and we'll get into it in a little bit, but like throughout your career, you've negotiated deals with 13 NFL teams. Um, you've obviously done massive deals with, with talent uh, from, you know, from Hannity to, uh, to, to Michael Kay to, to Mark Levin and so forth. Um, what part of the business do you think you're the best at and what part of the business do you prefer the most? Um. I really like bringing the pieces together, sales and programming. I do like dealing with people. I don't mind, like, a lot of a lot of my friends hate, you know, I don't want to deal with aging, oh, pain, and you know, all that stuff. I think if you're fair and if you build your case, you know, you always don't agree. But I, my view, particularly with talent, was always like, I want to get you to a better place. And I would tell all sure. the talent, their agents, I hope one day you have a gun to my head. Because if you have a gun to my head, <laughs> That means you're doing great and we're doing great and I got to make a decision then. But now is not right. the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you know, and, and hiring the right talent and getting the sales team excited and tying them together. Because here's an da- example, Dave. I never paid for live reads. I wouldn't pay any talent for live reads. Really? That was my deal was that. And it always was an argument. And I said, here's our deal. I'm going to pay you fairly. If you do your job, I'm going to give you big bonuses for ratings. I said, but at the end of the day, you can't hold us captive because you didn't get enough live reads. You don't want to do live reads. We don't pay you enough live reads. The sales team isn't good enough. I don't want to deal with that. It's not fair to anyone. So I'm going to pay you. I'll pay you a bonus based on ratings. If it's an endorsement like the only car drive is whatever, that's a different story. Sure. Um, but really, that's very smart. But that's very part, smart. That's part of our business. And if you do it well, the station will sound better. It becomes part of the content, just like the lead in on a podcast. No different. In 2001, you now become the SVP of all of the ESPN owned and operated stations. And now, I mean, that's you've already had a huge gig running three New York stations, but now you've got how many were there at that moment in time? It was five. There was Dallas. You know, it was New York, Dallas, LA, Pittsburgh, and uh, Chicago. So all all major large markets. Yeah, you know, massive markets and one large, very large market. How did that now change your your day to day? And and who came to you and, and gave you that promotion? Um, that was Tro- uh, Trot Keller gave me that, 
And we're going in a bunch of different directions. We're starting digital, really getting to digital. So Trog, you know, wanted to move skill sets around. I wasn't embracing digital as much as some would like. Okay. (laughs) I love, I love growing the stations. So, uh, so I took over the station group. I, it was a lot of travel, but I could tell you I had great GMs in every market. It was really good. And I loved going to each market, talking to the talent, you know, talking about the vision of the group, where we're going to go. Sure. Um, so are you in charge now of content and you're in charge of revenue in all those markets? Yeah. So all the GMs reported to me. So if they were going to do a contract with, let's say, someone in Chicago, I always gave them freedom to do what they want. Hey, Tim, here's what I want to do. Okay, no problem. We're good to go. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it worked. How much time were you spending on the road? And you would be in charge, I'm assuming, also of negotiating the deals, the the rights fees, because I have here you you negotiated uh, with the Lakers. Um, you negotiated um, with uh, other out-of-market teams, I'm assuming, uh, in, in Chicago and L.A. and so forth. Well, I, I, I did the Lakers a bunch of times because at one point I was GM there as well because we were looking for a GM. So for a year I was going out there every other week. If I'm remembering right, I was over, I was programming at KBIG at the time, and I'm pretty sure, was it, KLAC, did they have the Lakers at that time? They did. And we lost? Yeah. Yes. And I remember, because I used to work out with Greg Greg Ashlaw, oh, we worked wow. out together. Yeah. And I remember when that was going on, because he was venting a little bit to me about it. But I'm I'm pretty sure you guys ended up winning that deal, but, and that was a really big deal. I, but I didn't do that deal. I'm not sure we won that deal, because <laughs> I, that deal was crazy. And to be honest with you, I was against that deal. I said, because of the money attached to it, we, we were just paying too much. And uh-huh. Greg was very smart getting rid of it at the time. <laughs> um, and we lived with that for five years. And then we did a new deal and the Lakers are a tremendous brand. So they, they, they're a game changer in Los Angeles. Sure. Sure. And that, that era as well was yeah, a, yeah. was, a, was an great. amazing era. Yeah. Incredible. So you're on the road. How much during this time? I was every other, cause I was still running New York. So I was, oh, you've got every like got third, every third week I was, you know, going to a market. Are you enjoying it more? I, I talked to, uh, you know, some programmers and GMs and, and, you know, I, I see you, I think you're really a, a creator and a builder from what I'm, uh, from what I'm gathering. And was it hard for you to now have several babies, several children that you had to worry about versus just, you know, one, two or even three? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I would get a lot of sad faces in New York. <laughs> because it was like, you know, it was like, well, we're taking clients to the Nick game Thursday night. Well, I'm not going to be in town. It's like, oh, right. And listen, like anyone else, you, you pay attention to the sick kid. So I was spending a lot of time in Pittsburgh at the time. Chicago, we had a great team there. L.A., we had some issues. So I'd go where I had to go. And quite frankly, if they didn't need me, I didn't go either. I mean, I don't want to overmanage either. But I'd clear vision, good or bad, for what we should be, and I I wasn't I wasn't content with. Well, we're not going to beat our competitor. You know, we run network stuff and we're SPN. That that's not good enough. Right. There's no doubt you are in, in incredibly passionate, and I, 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 I have so much respect for love that. Love it. Yeah, I I do too. I do too. Talk to me a little bit, and I, I want to talk about your negotiation skills. I know we talked uh, in regards to the talent negotiations and so forth, but. You're dealing with these massive franchises like the Lakers, like the Knicks, like the Yankees. What does that negotiation 
like? Because now you're talking, not that some of these talent deals aren't big deals because they are, but now these are, these are become really big deals with uh, household, uh, you know, I mean, they, worldwide famous brands, right? You know, uh, a Yankee, you can see a Yankee hat in, in Europe. Uh, they know what the Yankees are. I, I was in Africa and I, I saw a, a guy wearing a Dodgers hat. I mean, these are massive yeah, brands. Yeah. And uh, how does that now change? And what's the mindset when you go into working a deal like that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It is a little nerve-wracking, particularly speaking to, let's say, someone at the Yankees, or even starting you know, with the Lakers or something like that. These are big-time people, right? Some of them are media stars in some respect. I always felt just, just go in and be honest. What are you looking for? Can we do it? If we can't, I always get back to people quickly and say, listen, uh, you know, we just can't do that. I want to hold you up. And, and, and just be honest, listen, at the end of the day, my feeling is everyone's got to walk away winning something, right? So the fact you'd like, oh, we got the greatest deal. Well, you getting a great deal is going to be bad for them, which is not going to be good for the relationship. And who knows how long it lasts. I think, so I think honesty, whether it's with the Jets, who we've had in New York for like 20 years now, you become friends with these people and they trust you, but you got to deliver. You can't just- It's, and it's, it's like anything else, like talent. It's not just about the money. The money plays a big part, but it's all about the things wrapped around the money. It's about getting your talent engaged. It's about the, the team caring about the franchise. It's promoting it the right way. It's when you market the station, you market your team. Is what, I would tell everyone, the Lakers are our biggest personality. We got to market them like their afternoon drive. Right. So some amazing advice. You said something. I've only heard this one, one other time. And I think it's such a fantastic piece of advice. And a mentor told me it, uh, he said to me, no is the second best answer. Yeah. And so many people, and I, I look at, I I'm, I'm in sales and so many people are afraid to tell you no. So they think they're being nice and they're kind of leading you on and you can't get an answer. And when someone says no to you, yeah, it's not what you want to hear, but it's better than being in this limbo and not and in basically being paralyzed and not being able to move. Sure. And at least when someone tells you no, no, you're like, okay, you can accept that, digest it, and then move on to what your next, you know, your, your next plan is going to be. And you just mentioned that when you couldn't do a deal, you would let people know quickly. So they had time to work out another option. Yeah. And uh, great, great piece of advice. And I so agree with you. Um, you know, money certainly is important. We all have got to make livings and put food on the table and so forth uh, and, and operate profitable businesses. But I believe relationships are incredibly important yeah. and being able to do things that are wrapped around it. And you get more satisfaction out of that too. There's a lot of research that kind of shows that, uh, you know, telling someone you appreciate them and just taking a moment to pick up the phone and, and call them or doing what like Rush would do and uh, just saying, Here, here's a popcorn machine or here's a set of golf clubs that came to me. That meant so much, probably more so than if Rush would have just given you a thousand dollars. It's just like, hey, this is something that, you know, and great, great advice. In 2010, you are now up again and you become the SVP of play-by-play talent for, uh, in talent planning, uh, for, for ESPN. So now you're overseeing all the play-by-play, uh, walk me through that. And, uh, and now being on that side of it all and really on the programming side. Yeah. So we never had anyone at ESPN that just concentrated on rights deals in radio. They kind of either came our way through the company or whatever. So Todd Keller wanted me to concentrate on developing more avenues of business for the network. And quite frankly, I'm, I was like, what? <laughs> I, I wasn't too sure. <laughs> but the one thing, one thing I did know, because we had a lot of rights, we had Major League Baseball rights, we had NBA rights. Obviously, we had some, some college football. 
But the two areas I, I thought were the main area that were weak, we had no NFL on ESPN radio. Oh, interesting. None. I didn't realize that. Um, Westwood has the national package. Right. And I sat there and said, well, why aren't we running Sunday afternoon games? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Well, you know, Westwood does that. And it was Compass Media is another one that does it. And Sports USA is another one. I said, well, we're ESPN. Right. We have we have clearance. Why aren't we doing it? And everyone looked, well, we can't get into that space. We'll get killed. But, but it's too late. And whatever. So I spoke to my team and we started calling teams. And what's different in that space is you can buy individual team rights out of market. So, for example, I could go to Rams and say, listen, I'm going to pay you this for the next three years. Whether I run 10 games or two games or one game, I'll take it out of market. I will not conflict with another team and I'll put a schedule together. So we'd run the Rams in Missouri, let's just say. Right. So on the network space, it's fine because you're delivering NFL content. Yeah, this is fascinating. I know a little bit about it. So you have a local station that's got the local rights. Yep. So you've got the, uh, so now you can take the Rams outside of LA proper and sell it in other markets and sell that as a package to other stations uh, outside of LA, correct? Yes. Getting- and you would have the rights for certain teams where Compass may have a few teams. You would have a few teams. Yep. Larry Kahn would have a few teams. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, Everyone thought I was crazy, as I did. And I can tell you, I was sweating bullets for a while because I had to get blue chip teams that other people had to have or I couldn't trade to put a schedule together. So, for example, I needed the Patriots. Okay. Whose rights were up. Or the Giants. So, when the Patriots were playing a big game, and let's just say Larry Kahn, who I've become good friends with. He's a good man. Yeah, Larry's, Larry's the greatest. So, you know. I needed them to say, you need, a, you need the Patriots? Okay, I'm going to run the, the Jets-Ravens game. So I didn't have a lot of teams starting out, but I needed blue-chip teams so I could say, guys, you got to work with me, even though we're ESPN. Larry, to his credit, in the beginning said, I'm willing to work with you because you are ESPN. Right. And you're bigger, you got more distribution, and you got a bigger bank account, and you'll be able to figure it out. Some others so, fought us a long Yeah, way. so explain that to me. So you needed the Patriots, so you get you get the Patriots, but then you would trade a game, like one game uh, of the season, or how would that trade? No, we would, we would sit down, and they're still doing it to this day, um, beginning of the season, and we'd make a schedule for the first five games. Okay. And then after that, as time went on, we'd make another schedule because Patriots could lose the first oh. four games and the people may not want them. But the reason I say oh, the reason I say the I Patriots understand. or the Giants or whatever, I needed teams that you know. Wow, it's the Patriots yeah, versus Giants game. You know, sure. ESPN owns that game. We want that game. Well, you can't have that game. You're gonna have to give me another game and trade with me next week for whatever. And it kind of. It's, oh, fascinating! So when you traded, would your play-by-play team then be in charge of that game? And then uh, a Compass's team would be in charge of another game? Yeah, in, in, some, in some respect. So I would give Compass the opportunity to take the Patriots, and I may take one of Compass's games. Fascinating. So talk to me a little bit, Tim, about how you would – I've always been kind of impressed with just the logistics and moving these play-by-play teams around, getting them set up in all these various stadiums. How does all that handled? Do you have like a team that puts all the travel together and so forth? 
Yeah. People that are lots, much smarter than me, Dave. Um, <laughs> so we would have to coordinate satellite time, and most of the stadiums now are all wired. So we would call them in advance to their production team, make sure everything's all set, and would come in, come in early the morning of, and make sure everything's ready to go. But I, quite frankly, I didn't do any of that. I had this great yeah, guy John help. Martin and Steve Haddad who were awesome, and you know they produced all the games and. You know, set up, but set you're up, you're yeah. traveling with uh, I'm pretty sure with all your own gear and so forth. So oh, yeah. when you get yeah. yeah when you get there, you've got a, a booth essentially uh, to to record out of and to, to obviously see the game. But you've got to bring your equipment and set it up. Exactly right. So the lines and everything are all set. Other than that, we're bringing the board and everything. Amazing. That's a huge undertaking in and of itself. Oh, it is. I mean, listen, NFL is one thing, but you know, try doing it for Major League Baseball. Or a World sure. Series game, it's it's right. a, it's a big deal. And how many people usually go with the play-by-play team? So usually we have uh, probably about five. We'll have a producer, board op, analyst, play-by-play, and whether we have a sideline reporter. Football's a little different. We may have a, we'll have a stats guy there, so it's probably six for football. Were you a sports fan growing up? Oh yeah. Yeah. So this has got to be somewhat surreal that now you're you're broadcasting all these, you know, big games and you're going to these, you know, playoffs and uh, championships and so forth. It's awesome. I mean, the guys who put it together are much smarter than me, but uh, I always looked at it no different than talk or even it's it's how you present the content. Like, how does it sound in the air? So if it's a game and I have the right guy calling a game. What does it sound like, you know, going into commercial breaks? How are you doing recaps? What does the halftime show sound like? What type of music are you using? Are they, you know, are they, are they good music bets? I would think of all, all these things and then know the heck out of people because. <laughs> yeah. I'm thoroughly impressed with your left side, right side of your brain. It's, you know, and especially in the era that you and I came up in, there was definitely a divide between the sales floor and the, in the oh, programming yeah. team. Oh, totally. And we did not intermingle uh, probably as much as we should have. And the fact that you started on the sales side, but actually moved over to the programming side is really highly unusual. I don't know many people that have done that and done it successfully. Well, I think I, it's funny. I think I fought my way into it because I was, <laughs> you know, for and many years I was known as the sales guy. And I'm like, you know, why don't we do this? Okay. All right, buddy, we got it. You know, like no one to hear it. And then I guess a few of my suggestions kind of clicked and another one clicked. It, you know what it is? I think it's, it's the way it should be. I think you have to establish some credibility and in some, some respects I did not, they weren't always right. Believe me. But uh, I enjoy that part, and I enjoy engaging the talent. I mean, I like talking to them off the air. I mean, it sounds like, man, you're just a a great leader. Um, The fact that you're absolutely an advocate for your talent, but you're uh, in the way that you treated your talent, but in the same way you you were looking out for the, for the station, you just were very well, well rounded. And I have a tremendous amount of, uh, tremendous amount of respect uh, for what you've done and what you've been able to, what you've been able to build. I know, uh, obviously a a few years ago, uh, ESPN decided to, uh, to, to sell their, their radio stations and, uh, you know, fill me in a little bit about that and your feelings. And, and, you know, kind of, uh, and then I want to get into what you're doing today, but yeah. was that tough? Um, listen, ESPN, you know, ABC, Disney, tremendous company. I loved working for them. I saw over time as first they sold Pittsburgh and I was part of that. Unfortunately, I had to go to Pittsburgh and do that. Mm-hmm. And then the next, you know, a few years later, Dallas disappeared. 
And then right. <laughs> a few years later, Chicago disappeared. And I'm like, this ain't looking so good. And I get some of the reasons that, you know, I don't understand all of them, but I think they felt they could keep the network. the owned and operated stations with the headcount, the cost and all those things sure. um, didn't make sense. So quite frankly, although I wasn't happy with it, it was right. kind of a matter of time where I'm like, okay, eventually this is going to happen. But I always, I always told my staff, listen, be relevant. Always give them a reason to say, we can't do this. They're too good. We just can't do this. I think we did that. It's certainly in New York. I mean, the K show was number one with, uh, with men. Uh, the station ratings were great. We were certainly hitting our numbers. Everything was good. But I think that it was all a financial decision between COVID hitting and expenses and headcount and decision was made. So yeah. um, it was totally, really disappointing, but the company was great to and, me. And the fact that you got to do it and for as long as you did, it's obviously you're great at what you do, but what an amazing opportunity to work with a franchise like ESPN, to work with with talent like Hannity and, and Rush and, and Michael Kay and, you know, the, the Yankees and the Lakers. I mean, these are just premier franchises. I mean, what an amazing uh, experience and amazing wow. run. It's um, yeah, beyond, beyond. Yeah. And I, I don't know many people that that would last 20 years in this industry without, uh, basically within the same company and continue to, to rise like you did. And, uh, you know, again, uh, very, very impressive. So you get uh, tapped uh, now under this next part of your career uh, to lead the Broadcasters Foundation of America, which is a, a phenomenal organization. And I want to get into what you guys do, but well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Broadcasters Foundation of America and what... Uh, the, the, the mission is. And then sure. I, I want to talk about uh, the, the, the shoes you're now filling. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. The Broadcast Foundation America has been around actually for 70 years, had a v- bunch of different names over the years. What we do is we raise money for folks in television and radio. And that means anyone. Don't You don't have to be a broadcaster. You could be in sales, marketing, board op, producer, doesn't matter. And we give monthly grants to those folks who have critical illness and have financial difficulties, can't pay their bills, and you know they are medication, and or, or they've been in an accident. We give them monthly grants every single month, so they will get a check every single month if they qualify. Last year, we gave away over two million dollars. It's amazing. We also have emergency grants. So when you know Hurricane Ian hit Florida, and someone's roof was caved in and they're staying in the hotel, we gave out a hundred thousand dollars in emergency grants. That's incredible. And it's all the broadcasters. And, you know, the challenge the challenge we have is that we want more people in broadcasting, and thank you for doing this, by the way, to know about us, to know about the mission, to know about what we do. It's more people than you think, and you'd be surprised by some of the names that are getting grants because you assume, like, ah, oh, I thought they did really well, or, geez, they, they were GM of a station. And, sure. and then you start going through the circumstance of what happened or whatever. And some of these diseases, whether it's cancer or ALS or whatever, can wipe you out. Yeah. Wipe you out completely. And I, I believe it. It's unbelievable how expensive, uh, you know, certainly prescriptions are and medical care, uh, you know, has become. And I, I'm such a uh, fan of, of what you do. And I've been, you know, somewhat involved uh, with, with the golf tournament, which I want to yeah. talk about here here in a moment. But uh, really in, in awe of, uh, of the services that you provide to, you know, fellow broadcasters and uh, people in our industry. Thank you. Thank you. 
you know, I got into it thanks to Jim Thompson, who ran the Broadcast Foundation for 14 years. And I always helped them out with their golf outing. And whether I was at the station side, you know, buy a foursome or, you know, give them stuff to give away or whatever it may be. And um, I was very close with Jim. He was a great guy. And he brought me on to be co-president and he was going to retire in this past December. Unfortunately, and I guess some sad ironic uh, irony with it, Jim got throat cancer. Such and, a shame. And passed away this past August. So he's trying to help others and here it is where he gets sick. Yeah. Um, but it's, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a great foundation. We're helping a lot of people. We want to help more. It's kind of like radio in some respects because we make it, we sell it, you know, that type of thing. Right. Right. So we have to produce events that drive revenue. We, you know, we have to solicit companies, individuals to drive revenue, but all that revenue, the majority of it all goes back to give out to folks. So the more, the more we raise, the more we can give out. And you've got some uh, big events uh, com- coming up. Uh, the Golden yep. Mics uh, are going to be at the Plaza in New York on March 6th, yep. uh, which is a, a great event. Um, and Soledad O'Brien is hosting this year? Soledad O'Brien's hosting. We're honoring uh, Jack Abernathy, president of Fox Television. Oh, that's great. Uh, a great guy. And our Lifetime Achievement Award is going to Dick Wiley. He was the former FCC chairman and a renowned broadcast lawyer. In fact, this year, the, f- the first time ever, we're going to be named, named the Lifetime Achievement Award. So we named after Edward F. McLaughlin, who uh, started Rush Limbaugh's career. Oh, how cool. And Ed, McLa- and Ed McLaughlin, who um, started EFM Media, that's what it stands for, was a chairman at the Broadcasters Foundation and a wonderful guy passed away a number of years ago. And we're naming the Achievement Award after him. So uh, that's, that's very cool. And then shortly thereafter, uh, during the week of NAB, you've got the Philip J. Lombardo uh, Charity Golf Tournament on the 16th. Uh, I played yep. that for a few years. And that's a, a lot of fun. Uh, that's the Sunday that NAB starts uh, on April 16th at uh, Bally High, which it'll be Bally High again, right? Bally High, yep. Yeah, which is a great time. And then you also have your leadership breakfast uh, coming up on the 19th, just a few days after the tournament, which is going to be at, at the win. And so our tickets uh, still available for uh, the Golden Mics and the Leadership Breakfast? Yes, both are. The Golden Mics are going quick It's because it's going to be a great night. So yeah, tickets are still available. They can contact me um, or go on our website. And right. as well as for uh, PGL Golf Tournament on April 16th, still available. It's a fun day. It's going to be better this year because we have more entertainment, a bunch of different things we're doing on the course. And it kind of kicks off the NAB. It's kind of like, come start that day have some fun, few drinks, play golf, and then the NAB week kicks off. Yeah, it's a, it's a great time. I highly recommend it. We'll put in the show notes a link to the Broadcasters Foundation of America and some information on these three events. But again, a great cause and uh, really grateful for everything that you do uh, for them and, and Scott and the entire board. Um, anything you need on our behalf uh, you know, or that we can do for you, please uh, never, never hesitate to ask, man. I think uh, oh, it's really no- noble, noble, much needed, much needed work. And uh, it's been such a, a pleasure to talk to you and, and learn about your career. What, what an amazing, uh, amazing ride. Well, I want to keep riding and we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it going. And I, I yeah. can't thank you enough for having of me course. on the podcast. It's, a, it's fabulous work that you guys do. One last thing too. This is yeah. uh, from a couple months ago, but highly recommend if you have not yet. Tim was on the cover of Radio Inc. Uh, the November issue, uh, but great, uh, great article about you. And uh, so, if you've not read that yet or, or picked up a copy, uh, go to Radio Inc. and uh, radioinc.com and uh, get one sent because it's well worth it. 
Tim, thank you so much, man. Been a pure pleasure. Dave, thank you, buddy. It was awesome. I really appreciate it, bud. I look forward to seeing you. Likewise, man. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been a Benstown McVeigh podcast production. Hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Darren Silva. Producer and editor, Jake Urbanic. Show coordinator, Estefania Padilla. Marketing and distribution, Suzanne Aksu and Robbie Gessel.